Hello, I'm Regina Botras and this is Backstage, where we talk with the who's who on stage, in dance, comedy and performing arts, speaking with the leading theatre makers of our times and how they came to the stage and what drives them and inspires them. And my guest in this podcast is Marg Orwell. She is the designer of the picture of Dorian Gray playing at Sydney Theatre Company's Rosalind Packer Theatre until the 7th of May. And as someone who missed it the first time round, I jumped at the chance to see if it lived up to the rave reviews and I must say it did. One of the most striking elements in the production is the design. It's a stunning traverse of time from period costume to present and innocence to debauchery and I am very lucky to talk to the woman creating the magic of the world of this production. Mark Horwell is a multi-award winning set and costume designer The other productions she's done for Sydney Theatre Company are How to Rule the World, Lord of the Flies, The Resistible Rise of Arturo Ui, and she's designed for The Truth, Sexual Misconduct of the Middle Classes and Others with Sisters Grimm, Birdland, I Call My Brothers, uh, Constellations, Marlin for Melbourne Theatre Company, Because the Night, Melancholia, Bliss, Caravan and on and on and so many others for Malthouse Theatre. She's designed for Opera Queensland, internationally for the English National Opera, the Barbican, Theatre Basel and other productions. She's been accepting awards since 2005, both Green Room and Sydney Theatre Awards up until 2021 last year with a Sydney Theatre Award for The Picture of Dorian Gray. Please welcome Marg Horwell. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. I sound awesome when you list everything like that. It's great. You are awesome. There's so much that you've done. Oh, man. And I just, before we jump into Dorian Gray and one of the most outstanding parts of this production is the design. It's fantastic, fantastically realised and uniquely realised. But before we do, tell me about how you came to be a designer. Like, is it, did you have a dollhouse growing up that you sort of (laughs) (laughs) realised? Like, like where did it all begin? Um, I think when I was... Younger, I grew up in Wagga Wagga in New South Wales, and I think I really loved, uh, I really loved theatre and live performance, and I really loved drama. But I, I didn't really know that if you, if you, that there was anything other than acting really to do that. So I just imagined I was going to be a fabulous, wonderfully successful actor. I went to university, and you know, really thought that was my destiny. But um, really, I did a course with a lot of people who are. Um, making their own work, who are uh, uh, animateurs and uh, writers and performers and kind of uh, creative roles that blended and kind of crossed crossed traditional kind of uh, roles in, in mm. theatre. And it was a pretty amazing place to kind of try out a lot of things, to realise that I am very interested in the, the start of a project, to... Uh, to kind of, especially new work when it is at its formative stages is kind of the the most interesting part for me. Um, But I didn't actually study theatre design. So I moved uh, into kind of learning on the job, crazy, uh, crazy kind of employment. I did the the first season of Walking with Dinosaurs in the skins department, kind of making big dinosaurs. And I then 
received a designer in residence at Melbourne Theatre Company for their first studio season in their new theatre, which is an incredible way to start doing main stage theatre with the guarantee that you can do it three times and not be terrified that's your one (laughs) one chance. I've had amazing mentors. I've been incredibly fortunate to be able to work with passionate people who make new work and uh, enjoy new writing and developing work with designers. Yeah. So did you act as well then? Very terrible acting and I'm thrilled that that all happened before the math, like before social media. (laughs) (laughs) So there's there's less evidence of that. But, yeah, I did all kinds of – at university I was in a lot of plays, yeah, and to then started designing them as well and then – then prefer right. to design them. Everyone should be very relieved, I think, that that's how things work. <laughs> so who are some of the mentors that kind of helped and guided you? Because I think they're really important. I mean, not just teachers, but I don't know, people that see something in you. Were there particular moments or people? Very early on I um, received a mentorship through a youth company in Melbourne and my mentor was Trina Parker, who was an incredible designer, she was working at the VCA at the time, but had a huge body of work has since passed away, but has had an incredible, incredibly kind of frank way of, of talking about what your role is and how to achieve what you want, how to identify, I think, what you want and to be able to uh, establish the career that you want by um, making sure that you find your people, I think, making sure that the conversation you're having is the right one for you when it's so easy, I think, to mm. be so relieved to be working. <laughs> I think that you you yeah. accept work that isn't necessarily um, best suited to you. So it was an incredible lesson to learn early on. I, I understand there's a great amount of luck or, you know, good fortune in that as well, that actually the right work comes your way. But I mm. feel like the work, especially in the last 10 years that I've been doing, has been really very much my aesthetic and very much I think my passion in terms of Mm. content as well. A great lesson to learn and so do you think then over these years you've found your kind of style or signature or is just is each one I mean obviously each one is going to be different but is there something that is Marg? I think so I don't quite know how to maybe describe it and it feels um I used to think that would be limiting to have something that you would go oh that that's what i do I think my work now looks like my work which is a pretty incredible thing to realize when you can step back and see the aesthetic that you've built along with your Mm. collaborators as well I think so I think there's there's a real DNA in the work that I'm making at the moment which is really I think really exciting Exciting to see, not necessarily exciting as, as a thing. Hopefully it's exciting as a thing, but it's exciting, I think, to be able to self-reflect on your on, on what you're what you're doing and be able to hopefully carve a way forward that's appropriate to your aesthetic. Absolutely. And kind of find your unique visual voice, I suppose, but also be because it's not necessarily just in the kind of tones or the colours, it can be the diversity or range of, you know, choices that you're able to make or vision. Are there, are there designers or other people that you have inspired you, I suppose? There's lots of people, I think, who inspire you along the way. They aren't necessarily the people who are doing what you're doing or doing what you imagine you'll end up doing. I've been inspired by lots of visual artists and 
photographers and uh, installation artists or, you know, filmmakers and uh, people who, who are, I think, really interrogating form or interrogating things dramaturgically in a way that feel really present or current, that feel political or feel um, like they're kind of mining what's under the surface of something. I, I think that early on, I, I don't think I'm very good designer of realism or uh, specific, you know, very true to period research driven <laughs> costumes or things like that. I think I really like to mine the, the detail under the, the surface of something and kind of find visually what can contribute to, to that work as a whole rather than kind of decorating. Yeah. Not that there aren't incredible people who work that way. It's just um, I don't think I've ever been very good at it, but also I think um, <laughs> it's something I'm not super interested in. So interior design is not for you. <laughs> Having said that, <laughs> no, look, I don't know. I think there's there's ways, I think all kind of visual arts have incredible potential to be the thing, you know, I think that you can yeah. actually turn your your skills to to any of those things, but I, I wonder if I'm um, I'm not the best at recreating something faithfully. Mm. I feel like I want to take things from everywhere and then potentially collage that together to hopefully make a different whole. Mm. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, indeed. So let's talk about Dorian. Can you remember those first moments or choices? And and talking about you know film as well because this is such a big part of it and you just said, you know, there are filmmakers that have influenced you or you've liked the aesthetic or something. What are, Do you remember the first choices you made with this production in a design way? They were – so Kip Williams, the director, came to me with some very clear ideas a couple of sections of the show. So he came to me and said that there would be one scene where – a performer would be at a dinner party and be at a dinner party with five or six versions of themselves playing different characters and that we could realise that through screen. And as a provocation for the form for the entire work, it's a pretty great kind of seed to be able to jump up from. One of the really early things, and I've been thinking about this lately, is because we're working again on a new show, but one of the first decisions we made was to put the, the screens in a portrait orientation which is a really relatively small kind of decision but it really informed the framing of everything and that things didn't feel like Instagram or didn't feel like a cinema screen necessarily it felt like a painting well to me it feels like a painting or a portrait and that everything then kind of was redefined in a slightly different proportion also the the decision to embrace very kind of manual handmade, hand-painted, older-style forms of making theatre would be combined with the cameras and the technology that we're using in the show. So there's always, a, I think, a, a good clash of something very real and very person-powered um, with something very technical so it doesn't ever kind of feel like you're just watching a a film or uh, there's always kind of a very live element to that. It's just why we're making live performance. I think there's mm. got to be that really mm. live element. But but making uh, a lot of things are 
hand-painted by artists. A lot of things are kind of hand-sculpted by props makers and things are actually very kind of lovingly made as a thing, which Mm. I'm really proud of. And I think you can see the texture in it. I feel like you can feel that in the the fibres of the show. Indeed. And and that multifaceted sort of personality of of Dorian is interesting. And also those pictures and that portrait, kind of moving portrait, kind of moves in my, I can't help but think of, you know, Harry Potter into scenes that are so debauched. So there's sort of innocence to age and even his ageing, even though he doesn't age physically, mentally is this sort of comment that you can't sustain, you can't live forever in your mind, even if you could in your body. But talk about that sort of like ageing for costume and, and sort of stylistic choices and because you tra- transverses so many, you know, years from period to contemporary. We haven't necessarily gone for um, making a, a person visibly age. I feel like it's more of uh, something that has kind of been more grounded in a in a true period or a period aesthetic or kind of loosely influenced by the the period in which Oscar Wilde wrote the novel then I think what it does instead of becoming older I think it becomes more of a collage of contemporary imagery um, Mm. and mining kind of things through history and it becoming a a very self-conscious compilation of elements that someone Mm. would would curate I guess for their their own image which Mm. I think how deliberate it feels when it's as it's being put together, I think is part of that, that we're very much fashioning our, as we become, as we mature and then as we're older, I feel like we're very conscious of how we are perceived or seen or put together or um, maybe we're just more in our bodies or more in our, we know ourselves better, I guess. Yeah. I think that that the production does that as well in the, the set design and sound design and lighting design that as we move through there are more kind of contemporary influences that go that get added into that show rather than saying someone has kind of aged until now I think it is just a um something that was of one era and then is an image of someone who has been many eras how did you go with the film versus the stage did you have to think in sort of two minds how is this going to look in a, a visual kind of filmic way, and then how is that going to then look on the stage? Like how did you kind of negotiate that for yourself? Yeah, definitely. It was keeping both in mind at the same time. We were we were filming some of the pre well, all of the pre-recorded content during the rehearsal period as well. So often Aaron Jean would be filming in the morning as three or four different characters of different ages and genders and body shapes and accents and then would go into the room in the afternoon and rehearse. So it really was a kind of an overload of of character for, for her um, and, you know, physically changing so kind of completely, I think, between each one. So we were doing camera tests constantly, but what we had to do, I think that the trickiest thing is knowing that you want that end product to be quite magical in the transformation. And some of that can be achieved really simply if she looks a certain way or has her head in a certain angle and we change the colour of her hair or we change so that she has a high neck instead of a, a low neck. It can be really transformative really quickly. But we needed to make sure that what we were making on film could be achieved on stage as well, knowing that we we couldn't possibly sit for a minute to 
see that transformation. It had to be quite quick. So it was a little bit of working backwards to make sure that we knew the stage image to make sure that we weren't kind of overreaching or overcomplicating in the film image as well, which is so tempting because it's so so many opportunities in film to just keep yeah. adding, you know, <laughs> we can, yeah. you can get close, you can kind of cheat a bit, I find. <laughs> it's not as not as yeah. exposed as a full open stage. So it feels mm. the temptation to kind of keep going is is high. We're in a unique situation with Doreen as well, though, where live image can speak to filmed image. So there's a, a, a kind of has to be a continuity of plausibility of location, I guess, and, and make sure that she's... Her, you know, she's looking at herself in the film and in on the screen. So there's a lot of factors in in the in the air, and they were all at play throughout that rehearsal period. So yeah, I think I think it's doing both. Incredible. And so I wonder then, with the things that you went you wanted to do, and they just had to go to the cutting room floor. We just can't do this. Maybe. And there's some things I'd like to do, to do again. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's probably always the case. I don't know. I mean, it was Kip and Dave Bergman, Nick Schlieper and Clements Williams. The entire creative team were very, the planning was very meticulous from the start. So there isn't a lot that fell away. I think that some things worked slightly differently to how we thought they might. But in terms of the adaptation to the stage, it it is quite true, which is, I think, I think actually quite unusual, especially for a new work, but we were making the work uh, during the first big lockdowns of COVID. We were delayed, so there was a slightly, like, just a fraction more time where we could mm. really focus on that planning. It's something that you don't necessarily get in mm. Australian theatre, especially you just don't get the lead time to be able to do that. So it was a bit of a luxury. I think it's a very much a work kind of of its of its time as well. I mean, we've learned a lot from how to make that and I think we could make it more efficiently, but it is actually <laughs> quite uncanny how the original plan is looking, we're kind of looking at that plan on stage. Not a lot of things fell away. Tell me about the flowers because they are so symbolic When whenever you use flowers just in general in, in paintings. I don't know the symbology and the colours to do with flowers, but also that kind of um, woven aesthetic I suppose throughout the production there's something I mean also first up full disclosure I really get obsessed with flowers there's a lot of flowers in a lot of my work (laughs) Um, I don't know what's happened I'm just embracing it I think that there's something I mean there's a lot of description of flowers in the book there's a lot of description of gardens and throughout the whole book where we're talking very naturally about going out into a garden and there be being bees and all you know describing specific flowers and then into um, a country estate where you're inside at the end and they're describing arrangements of flowers and orchids and you know they're very kind of visceral descriptions and kind of almost sexual descriptions of flowers where there's a a real um the motif is there in the book. I think that the great thing about it is that they you can kind of make flowers look incredibly real and, and feel like nature, but also very quickly you can make them feel very artificial and mm. very plasticky and this oh, great $2 yeah. shop near my house in Melbourne, which is just aisles and aisles of just like flowers stuck in buckets. and It's fabulous. But it's, um, I think that the artificial version of nature is 
great. And the replication of something natural to look almost real is actually conceptually really exciting. In the in the show, though, we it builds from something very small and something more realistic looking. And then as it moves through, there are flowers growing out of the furniture. There's in a in a long locked room, there is flowers growing out of the corner of the the room and moss kind of growing across the floor. And I read a book a while ago, which was about the re- what would happen if the world stopped and if nature reclaimed the world, how long it would take. And it's a very detailed description about the first thing that would break down would be, you know, I'm now making it up, but I'm saying steel. It's not actually steel, but you know, mm. things would break down or brick would break down or concrete would take this long to break down. Yeah. And the first thing that would happen is these plants would take over this and trees would overtake this and bees and ants and ecosystem and how the world would then kind of collapse and be overtaken by nature. So there's a great kind of, I think, a sense of someone being consumed by something, but actually mm. the heady scent of this early romanticism kind of growing up and overwhelming the production, overwhelming the person. And then by the end, the the there's a lot of flower arrangements and it's hard to see maybe from the audience, but it's actually about 60%, 70% junk from a $2 shop. So there's plastic, like water pistols and tiaras and fruit and like lobsters and zombie hands and things all from a party shop mixed in with the flowers. So it's a big kind of vomit of consumers. <laughs> but it's a, it's a, I think a quite a subtle detail. It just feels like a lot of, I think, texture and colour and kind of overwhelming pink mass-produced romance. Mm. What is that line? Because it seems the production seems like. Y- y- did you have limitations to what you could do? Because it feels like you could have done anything. What What were the challenges? I suppose, and what I'm going to ask too many questions, so you can answer whichever one you like. But also, what was the the line for you? Because not only do you have you creating the world within the film, creating the stage world. But also there are there are um, people on stage with cameras. Like, where does the line of your role as designer start and end? Costume and visual and like, what is that world? I think it's a fairly unique production in that it's just uh, all of those elements. It's a very collaborative process, and that. Yeah. Kip and I started that process, but then as we were in the rehearsal room, all of the creators were, I think, probably working beyond the scope of their role to be able to realise this as a kind of very coherent vision. I mean, the boring things are time or money or space. I've designed some quite large pieces and now we're touring the work. They, you know, we're trying to get them away in a corner or cover them in a thing. You know, we're just trying to make sure that the space can expand or contract depending on where we're moving to. I think that... What happened in rehearsals for this was less about being aware of the limitation and that kind of incredible opening up of something where we realised that we could achieve more than we had planned we could. And then I remember a conversation really early on where two characters were meant to be speaking to each other and I remember Kip saying, but what if a third could be in that screen? And then, but what if a fourth could be in that screen? (laughs) there's... And then you mm. you do that, and then the it kind of opens up an endless realm of possibilities. And that, and I I've said that before, but I just think potentially the biggest the biggest challenge is to edit and make sure that there's clarity of story, and to make sure that we're not kind of 
making images for image sake, which is very tempting. I think once you have that set up and everyone in the room and all of the cameras and an incredible performer, and you can, you could make five shows of material based on what you kind of have, but it's, I think keeping it essential or keeping it, um, uh, the images we made were like jewels, I think, in a, in a dark space, kind of images that came together and then dissipated quite quite quickly. So kind of staying true to the, I guess, deceptive simplicity of making those images rather mm. than getting too tricksy because mm. it gets very tempting for someone who doesn't work in a lot of film. It's pretty fun. It gets pretty fun very quickly. And, um, yeah, you can... <laughs> I think you can actually do a lot and when you once you combine the two the live performance and the film I think that the options feel endless so are you going to move into film now is that the imagine <laughs> look maybe I'm not sure we're designing another show um together as a team we're doing um Jekyll and Hyde with Sydney Theatre Company this year which is like we're designing that at the moment so it's very much all parts of my face at the moment in terms of how to, how to do that. So uh, not yet, okay, but, um, okay. yeah. But is it going to have flowers? Oh, <laughs> it might not. It might not. It's bizarre. And also horses for some reason. I've got a lot of horses in shows that have shown up. I'm allergic to horses and I think maybe <gasps> that's what's happened to me in my life is just my desire to ride a pony or, you know, have a horse as a child. I don't know. Yeah, horses and flowers, it's getting a bit of a thing. Well, we'll see. We'll see what happens by the end of the year. Mark Well, thank you so much for joining me. It's been terrific. Thank you so much. Well, that was Marg Horwell, the award-winning designer of The Picture of Dorian Gray, playing at the moment until the 7th of May. And keep an eye out for Jekyll and Hyde later on in the year. The same production team on that, sure to be another winner 